the throne. We have a hard time remembering that he is omnipotent. He has all power in his hand. We have a hard time remembering that God is omniscient. He sits high and he looks low. He knows everything. We have a hard time remembering that. We have a hard time remembering that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere at all times. He's so big that when he moves, he just simply bumps into himself. We forget that God is God. But perhaps the thing that we share equally in forgetfulness is that we're just human. We are limited because limitless belongs to God alone. We get hungry and thirsty because self-sufficiency belongs to God alone. We are finite because infinite belongs to God alone. We forget that we are just human. And no matter how strong you think you've finally gotten, you still got to sleep. No matter how smart you think you've gotten, you still get confused sometimes. No matter how big your house is, we all have the same size coffin. Because we are just human. Sometimes we forget that. We would like to believe that we are perfect, right? We would like to believe that we are superheroes. We want to believe that I am above so many things when the fact is, when it comes to the need for Jesus and his saving power, we are all on the same level. Here we find King David. The one that was chosen to be king even though he was the youngest of eight. The one that defeated a bear and a lion as they came to harm the sheep under his protection. The only one bold enough to fight Goliath. Even though he was simply a shepherd boy surrounded by soldier men. Here we have David. The one who would not let arrogance disrespect his current king, even though he knew the throne would one day belong to him. The one whose rhythmic fingers were the only thing that can calm the angry soul of Saul, David. The author of most of the inspired songs that we still sing today, David, who Paul was said was a man after God's own heart. And with all this being true, David is just a man. So let us, for a brief moment, look at the events that leads up to Nathan's rebuke in chapter 12. Verse 11 opens with, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go to battle. The verse ends with, But David remained at Jerusalem. Now, some would like to look at this and say, see, he was supposed to go to battle. If he would have did what he was supposed to do, he would not have ended up in this situation. And that's one way you could look at it. But I don't know if he necessarily had to go to battle. Um, This could just be uh, the way that the author is writing to let us know that this is usually the time people go to war. Uh, My my professor, Dr. Ross, uh, my Hebrew professor, he said, David's the king. He can do whatever he wants to do. So it's not necessarily the fact that he didn't go to war that's a problem. That's not when we start saying David is a sinner. 
this is where he's made his big mistake. No, I think he decides I'm not going to go to war. In fact, I will go to war, but not I won't go with him. So he sends you out. Whatever stance you want to take, on whether this is a foreshadowing event or not, David stays at home. And what does he do? He walks around, you know, like most people do in their house, and he decides to walk on the roof, unlike what most people do in their house. And as he's walking around, he sees from a distance a lady bathing. Now, we're watching the movie, and we're saying, David, turn your eyes, turn around, don't look at her. But the Bible continues by letting us know how her appearance was to David. She was very beautiful. And David begins to inquire of her, right? Who is she? I must know. Now, in order for them to find out who she is, if it happened at the moment, it probably means David had to get some people, bring them to the roof, tell them to look at her and say, who is she? Now you got other people looking at her. This, this is a possibility. But if, if, if it is reality, it shows us how our sinful ways and, and our sinful actions can bring others into it with me. Now the people being obedient to the king seemed like one of them just so happened to who she was. Well, I think that's Bathsheba, right? You know, the daughter of Elion the wife of uh, Uriah the Hittite? That's Bathsheba. Now, they give us information because we're going to see how disrespectful David's urges cause him to be. She is the daughter of Eliam. Now, Eliam is recorded to be one of David's top 30 warriors one of his bodyguards, one of the people that he can count on, that they're probably the most, one of the most skilled guys in all of Israel. She's the daughter of him, David. You know Uriah the Hittite, one of the most loyal soldiers David has and also is named in one of the top 37 soldiers in David's army. David, you know her. If you don't know her, surely you know Eliam and Uriah the Hittite. And what happens when David finds out who she is? Does he say, oh my gosh, I can't believe I even looked at her? He doesn't do that. He says, bring her to me. Now, she comes, why? Because David's the king. If she doesn't come, she will probably be killed. She comes and David lays with her. Then we find very next, uh, in parentheses, right after that, we find another really, really key detail. It says she was bathing as part of her purifying ritual for her uncleanness. And David probably knew this before he laid with her. It was one of two reasons, more than likely, that she was bathing. She uh, probably just came off her flow, and the Bible says that uh, if a woman is on her flow or afterwards, she cannot be touched by anyone until she is clean. That probably is the reason. Or she was on her way to worship. And before you can go into the temple, you must first cleanse yourself, usually two or three times, probably at your house, 
And when you got to the temple, they had an area where you can cleanse yourself before you go in. If this is the case, it is possible that her husband is headed to war. She is headed to worship. And David chooses not to do either one of them. He heads towards wickedness. And now this woman who just cleansed herself is tainted by the king they all trusted and loved. Now we know the rest of the story. If you don't, I'll try to tell it real quickly. She sends a message to David. I'm pregnant. So David tries to bring her husband home, ask him how things are going. They say, all right, that's nice to know. Go home with your wife. But Uriah is a loyal top soldier. He, he, he stayed asleep at David's door with his servants because he said, I do not deserve to go home and wash my feet and eat a good meal and enjoy my wife while my brothers are out there fighting, risking and losing their life. So David finds out he didn't go home. So he has another plan. I would get him drunk, and then I would tell him to go home. And he gets him drunk, but a drunken Uriah still has more character than David's recent actions. So lastly, David says, I got to kill him. So he writes in a letter, put Uriah on the front line of the hardest battles going on and then fall back from him so that he will be struck down and killed. He folds his letter up, he seals it so no one can open it except for the person it's meant to be and he gives it to Uriah. Uriah is killed. Do you see the pain and the lies that one sinful action can cause? After he's killed, Bathsheba mourns. And after the time period that ought to take for her to get over the mourning, David tells her to come to his house and he marries her. Now, he's gotten away with everything. Her husband is dead. She's my wife now. It's okay. We're going to forget all this happened. He's good, except for the very last line in verse 11. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. See, he got away with it for the most part. Joab doesn't know why he is having Uriah killed. He just has him killed. No one knows, except for him and Bathsheba. Everything is good now, except that the thing he had done displeased the Lord. Chapter 12 opens. With the Lord sending Nathan. So let's, in chapter 11, there's a lot of sending going on. Watch this. David sent Joab and his servants to battle in verse 1, chapter 11. David sent and inquired in verse 3. He sent messengers to Bathsheba in verse 4. Bathsheba sent news to David that she was pregnant in verse 5. Verse 6, David sent to Joab saying, send me Uriah. And Joab sent Uriah to David. In verse 14, David wrote a letter and sent it by the hand of Uriah. 
Verse 18, Joab sent and told David. Verse 22, the messenger told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. And lastly, verse 27, when Bathsheba was done mourning, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. Now we get to chapter 12. And since everything in chapter 11 was either being sent from or to David, the Lord decides to send something. He sends Nathan to David. And he says what? You guys just heard the parable. David, there was two men in a village. One of them was very wealthy, had plenty of sheep, had sheep, goats, and ewes, excuse me, had plenty. There was a poor man. He only had one. He bought it himself. Now, this one that he had, this female lamb that he had, oh, he loved him so much, David. He, he let the, the lamb eat from his hand and his bowls. He let the lamb drink from his cups. He raised the lamb with his children. He treated the lamb like his own daughter, even to the point he would hold the lamb in his arms. And one day, there was someone from out of town that came to the rich man's house. And to be polite, as you see throughout the Old Testament, you have to offer him in, feed him, take care of him. But he didn't want to give him one of his lambs. The rich man didn't. So the rich man decided, David, to go and take the poor man's only lamb and kill it and feed it to the pilgrim. David got angry. As the Lord lives, whoever did this, he ought to die. But he would definitely, according to the laws in Exodus, pay back the sheep fourfold. Because of what he did, also because he doesn't feel guilty about it. And what does Nathan say? You're the man. Whew. Can you imagine what's going on through David's mind right now. I, I'm sure he, he, he bowed to his knees. He, he, got, he got queasy. He couldn't walk. Because he, he finally realized what he did. You see, he too took something that was the only thing that someone else had when he had plenty. He too, instead of killing the lamb, killed the actual human. He feels it. David realizes that Nathan knows what happened. He now knows what really happened. And more importantly, he, he, he realized the Lord knows what happened. What must it have felt like? For David to be humbled by the realization of his sin. At that moment, he realizes, I'm the king, but I'm no better than anyone else. Everyone sees me as a hero, and here I am. I ought to be put, put to death. Has Nathan come to your door? Has Nathan reminded you how much of a sinner you are? Hmm? Has Nathan told you a story 
of people addicted to bad drugs, and right after you condemn them, he said, you're the man because you can't go two hours without caffeine. Has Nathan told you the story of people going to strip clubs and right after you condemn them, he said, you're the man. Because pornography is the same thing. Has Nathan showed you on the news bank robbers, shoplifters, and as soon as you condemn them, he said, you're the man. Because it's no different than lying on your taxes. Has Nathan revealed to you that you judge people who sin? looks different than yours. We're all sinners. David was not perfect. No one in the Bible was perfect. Paul said this, even of himself, in Romans 7, For I do not understand my own actions. Not Paul the Apostle. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. So it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Paul was not perfect. The older Paul got, the more he saw how big of a sinner he really was. Listen to this. In one of his earlier letters, he said this. For I am the least of the apostles. Unworthy to be called an apostle. So out of the 12 apostles, including himself now, uh, including uh, uh, the new one, Matthias, he said, I'm underneath them. So out of them, I'm number 13 in the world, but I'm not that good. But then later on, he gets older, and he writes this in Ephesians 3.8. I am the very least of all saints. He's getting a little bit more perspective, right? But then further on in his life, he proclaims this in 1 Timothy 1.15. Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Paul said, I am the worst of all the apostles. He lived a little longer. He said, I am the worst of all saints. And then he lived a little longer and he realized He found what he was the best at. I'm the best of all the sinners. And I want you to know, as you nod and agree, that I'm not talking about Paul anymore. You're the man. You're the chief sinner. How could Paul say this and feel safe with God? Because he knew Romans 5.20. Where sin increased, grace increased more. My brothers and sisters, this is the gospel. And it's for you. Not your neighbors, not the people outside the church. It's actually for you. This is the time for David to know that God's grace is not just for the bad people. It's for the believers and followers of Yahweh. Too many Christians act like if Jesus did not die for their sins, it would have been okay. Because my sin wasn't that bad. He did not die just for the habitual fornicators. 
He did not die just for rapists and serial killers. The gospel message is not just for those in the jailhouse and courtrooms. It's for each and every one of you inside these walls. So I say this, if you do not know Jesus, the gospel is for you. If you know, enjoy, and glorify Jesus, the gospel is for you because Jesus is for everybody. It's by God's grace and faith and protection and strength that you are the person you are today. Now, if you're realizing what David is realizing right now, and that is, I'm not good enough. I'm not as good as I thought I was. I've sinned against God. I continue to fail over and over. I abandon my responsibilities. I cheated on the one I love, and the preacher is talking about me. Hear these words today. Where there is sin, there is more grace. And when there is more sin, there is even more grace. Well, should I sin so that I can get more grace? By no means. But I want you to know that no matter how big or little you think your sin is, the cross is for you. It took Jesus down the cross just for you. Don't think that, oh, he could have just got hit one time and my sin would have been okay. Or it only took one nail to take care of my sin. No, if Jesus came down here just to die for one person, it was just you, it would have took the cross. David is confronted with his sin. Have you faced your sin? Have you realized that against God and only him have you sinned? Yeah, David sinned against Uriah and his family. He sinned against his entire kingdom. But the most important thing he realized was that I sinned against God. He told Nathan that, and then he wrote it in Psalm 51. Lord, against you and only you have I sinned against. Now, I can't, I can't read the story of David in Psalm 51 without thinking about a fellow uh, Christian who sinned against a fellow singer uh, by sleeping with his wife. After a couple of years or more of uh, repenting to his wife uh, and, and taking a break from music, he came back uh, with an album called The Whole Truth as a wordplay. Uh, the Whole Truth meaning he's telling everything uh, you know everything now, but he's talking about the whole truth because he goes by the word, the truth. So he's saying he's now made whole again. Listen to the, some of the lines in the song. The chorus goes, when I was dead, he revived my soul. He takes the broken and makes them whole. He takes the bound and makes them free. Taste the weak and make them strong. All of my sins have been erased. He has lifted my disgrace. I'm overjoyed, oh the joy, that Jesus would make me whole. This is someone that understands the gospel. See, a lot of people, it's hard for them to come to church. And it's not because they don't know God is gracious. They know God is gracious. The problem is his people aren't. I'm going to read a little bit more of this. He says, If it's in the dark, it's impossible to keep secrets covered. 
Who would have known that my indiscretions would reach my cousins? I apologize to me, me, my niece, and others. You should have been able to trust, but I breached the covenant. I knew you all before you was able to reach the cupboard. Now, when I preach in public, it's all out the window because sin contradicted a lot of what my pen wrote. Then he talks about it wasn't hardly right. What I did was wrong, and it ticks me off and it sets me off. And I hate the consequences because death results. But I know I read what I sow. He didn't tempt me, but he let me fall. Now I carry all that pain. Sin left me scarred. He let me fall, but he didn't let me go. And now I won't astray because sin left me broke. At times I'm quiet. I get a chair. I sit and stare. Think about the ways that sin affected my fiscal year. The tide is turning now shifting gears. And though I'm weak, he's giving strength in the midst of my tears. Y'all, this guy had to come to the realization that I messed up, but am I now going to believe the gospel? Was it only true when I felt like my sins were small and minute and, and my sins were only little white lies and they were funny and cute? Is that the time I believe the gospel? Can I forgive my spouse when they lie to me? I can do that. I can forgive my spouse when they forget my birthday. But it's really hard to practice the gospel. When your spouse cheats on you. The gospel, though, is real. And it's really for you. Will there be consequences? Yes. That's not what he said. He said he let me fall. Here's the thing, though. Even when you're down to the lowest that you can go, I told you he's he's omnipresent. He's there. So... Learn this from David in Psalm 51. The devil usually does three things. He does a lot of things, but not well. One of them, I'm not going to give him too much credit. One of them is he's a tempter. He tempts you. He tells you to do it. Nobody's going to know. And if you just so happen fall for that, he turns into your accuser. He begins to tell God on you. And he began to tell you that I told God on you. And he began to tell you, you're not, see, I told you you weren't a child of God. I told you you didn't deserve to live. I told you you should have killed yourself a long time ago. I told you, I told you, I told you. He accuses you. You shouldn't have done that. Why did you do that? Aren't you supposed to be holy? Aren't you supposed to be a child of God? And then he becomes a discourager. No one's going to forgive you. Not even God. He doesn't love you anymore. Your spouse, won't. they're not going to believe you. They're not going to forgive you if you tell them. But here's three things you can take from Psalm 51. You can have confidence. Look at the very first verse if you, if you feel like it. David asked God to have mercy. Not because he deserves it, but have the confidence of asking for mercy because of his steadfast love and his abundant mercy. The gospel is real. David knew that even though I sin, my God is gracious. So you can have confidence and you can go to God. You can have confession. Tell him, against you and only you have I sinned. Y'all, David wasn't that great of a person morally. 
The reason God and, and Paul said that he was a man after his own heart, because as bad as David was, he was a much better repenter. David could cry out to God. You can read Psalm 51. He is all over the place. Lord, blot out my transgressions. Forgive me. Oh, only you and only you have a sin against. Please have mercy on me. Take away your presence from me. Restore to me the joy of salvation. Created me a clean heart. He knows how to repent. You too can confess and repent. And lastly, you can have confidence, confession. You can have cleansing. He will blot out your transgressions. He will wash you thoroughly and cleanse you. He will purge you with hyssop. You will be white as snow. Being a Christian. Being a Christian. Samantha and Charlie and Alex and and everyone. Being a Christian does not mean you're perfect. What Being a Christian is saying, God, I need you every hour of the day. Being a Christian does not mean you're happy all the time because happiness depends on what's happening. But it will mean that the joy of the Lord will be your strength and you will rejoice at all times. And again, I say rejoice. Being a Christian does not mean you finally have it all together or that you're flawless. That's not what it means. Because no matter what, you can work harder, it's not enough. You can get smarter, it's not enough. You can keep all the rules, but it won't be enough. Being a Christian means that you say, I put all my hope, all my trust in Jesus Christ and what he did for me on the cross. Parents, you don't have to be perfect. Just be present. Children, you don't have to be perfect. Just be grateful. Spouses, you don't have to be perfect. Just be forgiving. Christians, you do not have to be perfect. Just be faithful. Not perfect, faithful. Not perfect, but faithful. You will fail. But your faith cannot fail. Your life will not be perfect. But you must have perfect faith in that cross and know that Christ loves you. He died for you. He forgives you. He will never forsake you. He will provide for you because the gospel is real and it's really for you. Amen. Wow. Wow. Aren't you grateful just to be in a church where you know the word of God is going to go forth? Man, that's such a blessing. Will you stand? We stand and lift up our hands for the joy of the Lord is our strength.